Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, Christmas from the Beginning of Time. So turning your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 to 42, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Born His People to Deliver. I think Charles Wesley has left us with the best treasure of all the Christmas carols that we sing this time of the year. In Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, he begins the second verse with the line, Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king. Now, I feel tempted to do a lengthy exposition of the amount of biblical allusions in that great Christmas carol, for Wesley piles the images one upon another that the line delivering his people comes from the book of Exodus. He's saying that Jesus coming into the world fulfills the theme that's found in the second book of our Bible. You know, my Christmas series is entitled Christmas from the Beginning of Time, and I have wanted to trace the theme of the coming of the Messiah from the 39 books we now call the Old Testament, or what I like to call the First Testament. You know, up till now, I've traced the theme of Christmas through the book of Genesis, so let's move to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus begins by telling us that all the patriarchs, that is, the ones described in Genesis, have died. Joseph also died at 110, and with his death, the era of the patriarchs is over. When the book of Exodus opens, the descendants of Abraham, the Hebrew people, are still living in Egypt where Genesis left off. And then in chapter 1, verse 8, we're told, there arose a new king in Egypt who did not know Joseph. In other words, All the goodwill between the Hebrews and the Egyptians had now disappeared. A new king had become the ruler of Egypt, and with his arrival, Israel is subject to slavery. Most of us are aware of the drama that surrounds Exodus chapter 12. After being exiled from Egypt for 40 years, Moses returns. He stands in front of Pharaoh, who's probably Amenhofus II, a man that was known for his athleticism, his handsome features, and his proud demeanor. And Moses makes a preposterous demand. You see this band of two million undereducated, poor, despised slaves that you used to do all the unskilled work around here. Well, they're the people of God, the, the creator of the ends of the earth. They have an ancestor named Abraham, and through them, a blessing is going to come to the entire earth. Satan is going to be defeated, and God's purposes will be prevailing. And they're about to fulfill their destiny. And I've been sent by God to demand that you let them go. Of course, all that seemed like nonsense. And then the unthinkable happens. Over a short period of time, God unleashes a series of 10 plagues on the Egyptians. First, the Nile, the lifeline of Egypt, turns into blood. You know, the Nile is the lifeline of Egypt, for in Egypt there's hardly any rain, and the Nile is necessary for survival. Its annual inundation was the difference between famine and abundance. No Nile, no crops. Furthermore, the Egyptian god Hopi was the spirit of the Nile, and this plague signals that he's a helpless deity, a mere impotent fantasy in the face of the God of Israel. Second, frogs cover the land everywhere, even in your bed and in your kitchen. Third, gnats cover the land. Fourth, flies. Fifth, massive death among Egyptian livestock. Sixth, boils appear on everyone. Seventh, hail destroys the Egyptian crop. Eighth, locusts devour what's left in the field, reducing the land to severe food shortages. 
and ninth darkness settles on the land. You know, with each plague, Egypt's gods are helpless and utterly defeated. It was extremely humiliating for the Egyptians. And with that drama as a background, Egypt's new growing and extremely prosperous economies in peril, their gods are incompetent, their military power is unable to respond, and then comes Exodus 12. The chapter begins with the words, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, you know, at the outset, let's understand that all of these events show us that God is in charge, even among the most powerful nation on the earth. You know, God sets down the narrative of what will transpire. Everything is orchestrated by God. The 10th plague is about to occur, but before it does, God has something to say to Israel as his people. So what's to transpire next will always be seen for what it truly is. And all of that's part of God's grand designs. You know, listen to Genesis 15, 13 to 14. There it says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. In other words, what happens now had already been planned so very long ago. This event is a part of God working out his salvation, not just for Israel, but part of his bringing salvation to the entire world. You know, since we're talking about Jesus, let's notice something very similar in his work on the cross. 1 Peter 1 verse 20 says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. In other words, the cross is not God's last-minute, knee-jerk response to the problem of sin. It is God's meticulous purposes being outworked, planned before the foundation of the world. And indeed, that's why Christmas is a celebration whose foundations are from ancient times. One never understands Christmas by beginning with Mary and Joseph and the appearance of an angel. Christmas is a part of a grand program of God working itself out in history. So let's return to Exodus 12. I'm going to read verses 1 to 2. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month will be for you the beginning of months, It will be the first month of the year for you. So the events spoken of here are so significant, they will change the Hebrew calendar. For the Hebrews, the events described here will be the beginning of the year for them. This is the month of Nisan, which occurs in March to April, and it will define every year for them. It's God speaking, saying, what I'm about to do now will be the most important date on your calendar There will be no more significant moment in your history than this one right here, right now. Now, again, since we're talking about Jesus, we're going to notice that Jesus was crucified at this same date. His crucifixion happened exactly at the same time of the year that God indicated was the most important date on the calendar. But we might also notice that the arrival of Jesus in the first place, Christmas, has also set for much of the world the calendar itself. Christ entering into the world is now marked as A.D., or the Latin phrase Anno Domini, meaning in the year of our Lord. But why is Exodus 12 so important? Well, it is because it's the most important date on the Hebrew calendar. And as we already know, it's the onset of the 10th plague, the destruction of the firstborn in Egypt, and the shock and the horror of that event will precipitate their liberation from slavery. The 10th plague, the one that Passover remembers, is the day of great liberation. 
But let's move forward. I'm reading now verses 3 to 6. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, that he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. You know, as the community of Israel got ready for God's deliverance from Egyptian slavery, there was a time of preparation. Please notice, first of all, that each individual family is to make preparation for what is about to occur. In other words, these events are far more than national events. These events have a personal application. So each family is to select a lamb without blemish exactly one year old. Then after four days, every household now has one. So after four days, they're supposed to slaughter it at twilight, a national slaughtering of lambs throughout the land. So what's the meaning of that? So please notice that the four days are used to make absolutely sure that there are no defects in this lamb. In other words, no bones were ever to be broken in this lamb, no small defects, no even slightest abnormality of any kind, genetic or environmental. Each lamb was to be a perfect specimen, and a year old meant it was to be in its absolute prime. Again, just for now, I must notice that Jesus was like this. After he had entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, for the last four days before his crucifixion, he was examined by different tribunals, seeing if there was even the slightest flaw in his character. And in the end, even Pilate himself had to admit that there was no fault in him. For the New Testament writers, this point was extremely important. Peter in 1 Peter 1.19 would say that we are ransomed from our sins, not with something that's futile or flawed, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. But this is more than just simply about Easter. This is about Christmas. So much of what I've said relates exactly to Christmas. With the Christmas season upon us, it's hard not to reflect on the most recent Israel experience hosted by Back to the Bible Canada earlier this year. Visiting many of the New Testament locations where Jesus himself walked makes the celebration of our Savior's arrival even more impactful. Well, I've got some good news. Back to the Bible Canada will be hosting another tour of the Holy Land on April 16th to the 24th, 2023, with an optional extension to Jordan April 24th to the 29th. With Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh-Against Phil Calloway, musical guest Amanda Stott, and the ministry leadership team, you're guaranteed to have a pilgrim experience that transforms your understanding of the Word and your journey of faith. If you're interested in joining us, reserve your spot today. Numbers are limited to ensure the most intimate of experiences. So visit backtothebible.ca or call us today at 1-800-663-2425. Exodus 12 is the calm before the storm, or the ceremony that leads to the climax. After each family killed a lamb without a defect on the fourth day, verse 7 says, Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. 
You know, if God is determined to kill all the firstborn in Egypt in order to devastate the Egyptians, that they will release the Hebrews from slavery, why is it necessary that each Hebrew family should first kill a lamb and then take the blood from the lamb and smear it on the door frames of every single house? And why this drama of God coming down to destroy, but then passing over the houses of the people who have the blood of the lamb on the door? See, what's more, right here, God establishes that a yearly drama of killing a Passover lamb was to be repeated so that each generation not only hears the story of how God devastated Egypt, but how God commanded a lamb to be killed, and that lamb's blood was a symbol of Hebrew salvation. Why all of that? Well, years later, the prophet Ezekiel would answer that question. Now, if you don't know, Ezekiel lived in very interesting times. In the year 597 BC, the Babylonians had come to Jerusalem and had taken prisoner Jerusalem's king, who's a man named Jehoiakim. Along with King Jehoiakim, several thousand of the leading citizens of Jerusalem were also taken into exile into Babylon, and Ezekiel was among them. And then there in Babylon, God started to show Ezekiel that he would send the Babylonians back to Jerusalem, this time not just to exile a few more citizens, but sack the entire city, set it on fire, and deport the entire population. But now the question was, why would God do that? Well, in Ezekiel 20, Ezekiel calls some of the elders of Israel who are with him already in exile, and he tells them not only what God was about to do, that is to, to destroy the entire city of Jerusalem, but why it was that he was going to do it. Israel was a sinful nation. God was going to visit them with wrath. And then Ezekiel says something surprising. The sin of the people of Israel in his time was no greater than the sin of Israel when they were in slavery in Egypt. Well, let's let the prophet speak for himself. I'm, I'm reading Ezekiel 20, verses 5 to 9. Thus says the Lord God, On the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, making myself known to them in the land of Egypt. I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God. On that day, I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. And I said to them, Cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourself with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt." But I acted for the sake of my name, that it would not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt, end quote. Hope you caught that. The Hebrews were as sinful as the Egyptians. They were just as deserving of having all their firstborn killed just as the Egyptians had. See, the story of Exodus is not the story of the good guys winning the day and the bad guys losing. The only difference between Israel and Egypt is the blood of the slain lamb on the door of their homes. The only thing that stood between them and wrath was the blood. Now, notice the Passover celebration. First, the family selects a lamb and has four days to ensure that it is without blemish. Then they slaughter it and put the blood on the doors of their homes, and then they take the flesh and roast it in fire, which is very interesting because the Hebrews did not usually eat meat that way. Rather, they boiled it. 
But this lamb had to be roasted. That meant that it was done much faster than if you boil it. You were required to eat all of it. Nothing was to be saved. Indeed, I mean, how are you supposed to save it since you're about to move out of slavery? And then the bread is left unleavened and eaten that way. So in the future, no Hebrew was allowed to leaven anything that was found in their house in Passover. The entire thing symbolizes that when God's salvation comes, it comes suddenly. No time to make preparation in the usual way. Everything is done in a hurry. Leaven takes time. God's salvation, on the other hand, comes quickly. However, behind all of those themes, the theme of atonement is central to the Passover story. A way must be found to save sinful Israel. Of course, no slaughtered Passover lamb can really take away sins. I mean, all that's highly symbolic. And the symbolism points to the fact that a substitute must be found. Somebody must stand in and bear the just punishment for our sins. Now, the writer of Hebrews takes a number of these pictures from the Old Testament, and he wants to sum up the nature of our salvation. Hebrews 12, 24 states that all Christians have come, he says, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, the writer of Hebrews wants to say that Abel's blood cries out from the ground for justice and vengeance, but Jesus' blood cries out for forgiveness and mercy. I mean, his is definitely better blood. So you see, all Christians will joyfully say that the only thing that marks me as different from the man or woman who's under the anger of God and awaiting the execution of his justice, the only difference between us is the blood of the Lamb. His blood applied to the door frames of our lives is the only difference. We're as sinful as anyone else, but the blood of the Lamb will cause the great and dreadful day of wrath to pass over us. You know, but I've promised to relate this not to the Easter account, but rather to the Christmas account. But it's precisely on this point, and it's important to see it, that we do damage to the account of Christmas if we try to remove Christmas from Easter. See, the great temptation for us is to see Christmas as a kind of a romantic fantasy that is of baby Jesus born in some kind of an idyllic barn surrounded by shepherds and wise men with with an ox and ass tapping their hooves to a little drummer boy. I mean, nothing could be further from the truth. See, in truth, the barn was most likely a cave, and the manger is most likely a stone feeding trough, and the shepherds and the wise men most certainly didn't show up at the same time. Now, I'll get back to the shepherds in just a moment, but before I do... I want you to notice words that come to us from Revelation chapter 5, verses 2 to 5. There we read, Then I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, now clearly, there is far more here than I can discuss. But I see a parallel between this passage and Exodus 12 and the Christmas account. See, the reason why no one was found to deliver God's people from their sins in the past through those long years of expectation and and waiting for God's Messiah is because no spotless lamb could be found. Not Abraham or not Isaac or Jacob, for they all had their blemishes. 
David, the great king of Israel, had hands covered with blood and who himself needed someone to deliver him from his sins. And when Jesus was born for the first time ever in the human race, a lamb without blemish is found. He's born without defect. Adam's sin was not found in him. That's why the virgin birth is so important to that account. And the reason why the shepherds were the first to attend his birth is because these shepherds were keeping watch over their flocks outside of Bethlehem, which is also in the direct vicinity of Jerusalem. No doubt they raised sheep for the temple, especially for the celebration of Passover, celebration of God's great deliverance from slavery and from the bondage of sin. And that night, the men who specialized in unblemished lambs were called to come to the one true unblemished lamb who would release a sin-damaged and deeply idolatrous people from their sins. The lamb of the Passover, the one untouched by human sin, lay in a cave meant to keep sheep and other animals, being prepared by God for the day that his blood would be applied to the door frames of our lives so that we would be released from our sins. And when he reached his prime, just like those lambs, he was slain for us. Christ in the manger is that lamb that was given. And that's the beautiful story of Christmas. Merry Christmas. Enjoy deeply what God has brought to us in the person of Christ. John, this has been an insightful message uh, to to wrap Easter into Christmas, to go back into the Old Testament and wonder where you're going with the whole Passover thing. But the truth of the matter is you can't detach Christmas from Easter. They're absolutely linked, and when we think of one, we need to think of the other. You know, Ben, uh, I I wonder sometimes whether or not um, the the misunderstandings that come at Christmas time are all related to this disconnecting of the life of Jesus, as if Christmas is independent of the rest of the account of the Gospels, and especially uh, of the account of the crucifixion and the resurrection. And so we do know that when Christ came, he comes as the pure spotless lamb of God, and we, we have to know why he came. So the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament was looking forward to must be seen in that. I mean, that's what our hymns actually teach us when we have that expectation. And, and that's what uh, we're supposed to build in, the, in terms of God's people. Let's live in that expectation so that we understand its true meaning. Great word. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Christmas is more than family traditions, gifts, and festive music. Christmas is a promise kept. God promised to send a savior, and Christmas is the fulfillment of that pledge. For this reason, Back to the Bible Canada is committed to the teaching of God's word, and your dependable support enables the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada to fulfill that mission. As 2022 draws to a close, Many listeners consider a special gift as an expression of their support for faithful, trustworthy Bible teaching. This year, our goal is to raise $519,000 by December 31st. This will allow Back to the Bible Canada to enter 2023 prepared to respond to the increasing need and opportunity to engage the world around us 
with solid Bible teaching you can trust. To give a gift to the year-end goal, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.